are in this series called The Five Solas, and lest you be mistaken, we're going to school today. Uh, so uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to learn some stuff that I'm very excited about. What we're doing in this series, you see the five solas. These are the five slogans or kind of the rally cries of the Reformation in the 1500s. Uh, you see them, Scriptura, Fide, Gratia, Christus, and Deo, Gloria. So that means Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone. Those are the five. So obviously, sola means alone, like solo, to be alone. And it is in contrast to what the church was starting to teach at that time and what then Roman Catholicism, as it became clarified, what they held on to, and that is this, plus, not alone. Catholicism is the plus religion. You see, they believe in all five of those things. They believe in Scripture and faith and grace and Christ and the glory of God. But it is plus, not alone. So, for example, it's Scripture plus church teaching, church tradition, popes and councils. It is faith plus works. Now, we unapologetically believe, because we see it in Scripture, we believe in alone, not plus. And we're going over these things because they are essential. These are in the closed hand. We hold these tightly they're very, very important, and we are hoping that through this series that you will understand the gospel better, that you will understand our faith and our hope even better. And the pleasure we have today in the middle of the series is to get into sola gratia, grace alone. Now to set that up, I want to share with you what uh, Catholicism teaches on this matter. Uh, in order to do that, I'm going to go to one of, one of my seminary profs gave us a graphical understanding. Now, for those of you who know me, you know how happy I am in this moment, right? I was an economics major because I love graphs. And then I became a pastor and I get no graphs. <laughs> like they all went away, except every once in a while, every blue moon. And, and here is one that I uh, grabbed from one of my profs and it starts off like this. So it is a graph of our righteous standing. You see it on the left there, our righteousness, our standing before God. You see three levels of depravity, innocence, perfection. We'll talk about what those are. But then it is a graph of that over time. And so your lifeline, your time is on the, the horizontal axis there. Okay. And so uh, what, what everybody acknowledges is that we, we start out in depravity. That is, because of original sin, we are in a broken, decimated relationship with God. Uh, Catholicism, Protestantism, we both agree on this. We disagree on the extent of the effects of that, but everybody agrees you start in a broken relationship with God. Now, because of uh, depravity, that means you're going to hell, and that's not a good thing. So uh, Catholicism comes along with a uh, solution called baptism. Uh, and this is why they baptize babies. Uh, high infant mortality rate back in the day, but even now, like you, you got to make sure you get that baby in the door quick. So we'll sprinkle some water. And what that does in their view is that jettisons the baby up to the line of innocence. Now, innocence, that means if you die, you're not going to hell. So that's a good thing. So we'll get our babies there. And, and you can see that babies stay uh, innocent for about six months. <laughs> it doesn't last long, right? It doesn't last long. And so they are, uh, you know, we are they, they are us, and we sin. The problem with sin, sin drags you down, right? Sin drags you down and, and lessens your righteous standing before God. The problem there, you see, oh my goodness, they just went below the line of innocence. 
That's a problem, right? Don't worry. Catholic religion has a solution for you called the sacraments. Some of you grew up in Catholicism, and that means you can't name the seven sacraments. <laughs> so let me do that for you, right? So there is obviously baptisms on the board up there already. Uh, there is the Eucharist, which we call communion. This is why Catholics must do Mass, the, the Eucharist, every time. You got to get your wafer, because that gives you your bump up to counteract your sin. You need that. Okay, so Eucharist, confirmation, there's penance, you know, do your Hail Marys and your Our Fathers after uh, confession. Anointing of the sick, last rites, extreme unction, whatever you call it. Uh, and then marriage is one of them. Cracks me up that both marriage and penance are in the same bucket. Do with that what you will, all right? Uh, and then uh, holy orders or ordination. So there's, there's the seven. And so these things counteract your sin, dragging you up in righteousness before God. Now, uh, it's important, and here's why. Let's say you come to the end of your life, and you do a doozy of a sin, and you die below the line of innocence. Where are you headed? You're going to hell. You're going to hell. And so, but maybe, you know, Catholic, again, it has a solution. Maybe you do, at, actually, before you die, you do some, some sacrament, right? Uh, and, and so now, when you die, where do you go? Not to heaven. Purgatory, right? You go to purgatory, and you need to go to purgatory to work off your lack of righteousness, your sins. And for how long do you need to be in agony in purgatory? Well, how big's the gap? Okay, see, that's how it works. So you got to pay it off. So purgatory is where you work off your sins until you reach perfection. Now you are good enough to enter into heaven. This is where the sacrament of anointing the sick or last rites comes in because if you're below the line of innocence and we do that for you, that brings you like a baby being baptized up to the line of innocence. Now you're going to be in purgatory for a hex of a long time and it's going to be painful, but at least you get there someday, right? So that's, that's uh, last rites. It also makes a little bit of sense out of the Catholic view of saints. Biblically, saints are just believers in Christ. That's all of us. But in Catholicism, actually, they are super believers, special believers. There are those that we say, uh, believe uh, kind of reach perfection in their earthly life. So they get to skip purgatory, go directly to heaven, do not collect $200, right? So you, you, you get there immediately. So that's a saint in their view. Of course, this is where indulgences come in. So your dear departed loved ones are in agony in purgatory. Don't you care? If you give me money as your church, then we, I can get them out of purgatory and into heaven. Isn't that cool with me? So uh, that is where indulgences come in. Now, as you're looking at that graph, you might be thinking to yourself, seems like something's missing. Where's Jesus? Where's the cross? And so here's what the graph, according to the scriptures, ought to look like. It's very simple. You're born in a broken relationship with God, absolutely. And you stay there until you put your faith in Christ. As Jared talked about last week, faith alone. You put your faith in Christ, then you are put in Christ. Question for you, how perfect is Jesus? Right? So you're in Christ, boom, you jettison up, not to the line of innocence, to perfection. And because you're in Christ, it's all about Christ. You stay there until you die, you go to heaven. That's the way it works. Now, you'll see this like in the thief on the cross who hung next to Christ. He put his faith in Christ, right? Remember what Jesus said to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Question, how many of the sacraments do you think that thief did? Zero. How many good works? 
How much personal righteousness? No, but Jesus said, because you have faith in me today, not later after you spend some time in purgatory, today you will be with me, not in purgatory, but in paradise. So, yeah, there is some uh, a caution here uh, that if you don't receive Christ, you stay at depravity. Absolutely. This test is pass-fail. It's not a graded test. It's pass-fail. Christ or no. Now, there are symbols to these two different faiths, and they communicate something. So you'll probably notice in uh, Protestant churches, we have a plain cross. If you go to a Catholic church, they have Jesus hanging on the cross called a crucifix, right? That's important. See, uh, to be fair, Roman Catholicism believes absolutely that Jesus made our salvation possible. But it's just not faith, grace, Christ alone, it's plus your worst. And so he made it possible, but he didn't make it secure. There's work left to be done. It's not complete yet. That's why Jesus is still on the cross. He's still working it out through your sacrament, sacramental duties, okay? He's working. Now, the Protestant cross is empty. Why? Because you go to things like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Look at this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, you stand up to get work done. But when the work's done, what do you do? You sit down. Jesus sat down because all the work was done. By a single sacrifice, past tense, he covered it all for all time and he sat down. It was done. That's why Christianity is not due, it's done. And Jesus didn't make salvation possible. He made it secure. He made it finished. It's not that if we work hard and try a lot and strive that we can kind of finish things up that he left undone. See, he hung there and he said, it is finished. He didn't say, it's mostly done. He didn't say that. He said, it is finished. He saved us and that is past tense. So it's not like Jesus didn't say, listen, I got the ball down to the two-yard line for you, all right? I'm giving you a fresh set of downs. You're first and goal on the two. Now you've got to push it across in the end zone. Good luck. No, he, didn't. he said touchdown, game, finished, over, done. That is the gospel we find in the scriptures. Now I want to give you two caveats before we keep going. Number one, I am not concerned about your jewelry right now. You've got a crucifix hanging around? I'm, no, I'm concerned about your faith. That's the issue. And the second caveat is this. We don't believe these things because some silly pastor said it or because of some silly graph. We believe it because of the Scriptures. Sola Scriptura leads to sola gratia. And that's what we're going to be digging into right now, the Scriptures and grace. So to do that, we're going to start out in Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Here it says, As it is written, none is righteous. Okay, remember the graph of your righteousness? There's your answer. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if you have a salvation system that depends in part on your goodness, your answer right there is no one does good. Sorry. 
That's just the setup I want to get to later in Romans chapter 3. Here's what Paul wrote there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's pause there for a, for a second because some of us have heard that before. We have a wrong perception of that phrase. Okay, It means there's the glory of God and I fell a little bit short. I'm so close to God, but just a little short. That's not what it means. That's why I read you the first verses. <laughs> no one is righteous, not one. We're all worthless. Like We're not even close. It's like God's righteousness is there and I went the opposite direction. The gap is huge. But here's the good news. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a payment, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, do you catch why I highlighted some words up there? Five solas. This is a great passage. You have the glory of God, you have grace, you have Christ, and you have faith. Four of the five are there. Where's Scripture? You're reading it. Right? It's implied, knuckleheads. All right, so they're, they're there. It's in, okay, so, so now our, our goal today is to zero in on grace. What is grace? Well, grace, it says right there, it's a gift. Grace is a gift. It is undeserved gift. It is an unmerited favor paid to you. It is unearned. You understand, as soon as you pay for something, it's no longer a gift, right? So, so it is unearned in order to be a gift. And Romans 6.23 makes this very clear. So let's keep going in Romans. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, what's a wage? Wage is what you earn, right? Whether you're hourly or salaried, whatever, that's how much you earn, right? So at the end of the pay period, you don't go to your boss and beg. Can I please have my paycheck? No, you earned it. Give me my dang money. I deserve it, right? So what the scriptures say is the wages, what you earn by your sin is death. Be very careful of asking God for what you deserve. You deserve death. You've earned it. It's all yours, okay? Now, salvation, though, is not on a wage-earning system. For salvation, he leaves that behind and he shifts over to a grace-gift system. And they are mutually exclusive systems. You'll see that later in Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says this. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. You should imagine you go over to a friend's house. They invite you over there. They want to bless your socks off. They make you the best meal you've had in a while. It's just a spectacular meal. Afterwards, there's music and good wine and good fellowship and laughter. I mean, greatest evening you've had in a long time. And then at the end of the meal, you stand up to leave and you take out your wallet and say, okay, how much do I owe you? Wouldn't that be an insult? If you pay for that meal, it's not a gift. You get that, right? All of a sudden, grace is no longer grace. As soon as you pay for it, it's, listen, you have in that moment, when you add to grace, when you go grace plus, you have disgraced grace. And it's no longer grace. So that's Romans. Now, what I want to do here is I want to hinge over and get into Ephesians chapter 2. If you're thinking, he's going to crush us with Scripture today, you're welcome. 
Okay, you're welcome because sola scriptura, that's where we bank it, right? So, yeah, so let's get into Ephesians chapter 2, rich, rich passage on this topic. Look at this. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Okay, that's Satan. You belong to him. <laughs> Thanks. So the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's not a very affirming passage, right? The wages of sin is death. So you were dead. Not only were you dead, you were an object of wrath before God. So the infinite, holy, almighty God had his wrath towards sin laser focused on you. Not a good position, right? But there is good news. And I'll tell you what, the next two words in this passage are two of the greatest words in Scripture. Verse 4 starts like this. But... God, not you, okay? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen? What did you do? Nothing. Nothing. You were dead. You were an object of wrath. Along the spiritual highway of life, you were roadkill. Okay? Like you're on the side of the road, stone dead, bloody and mangled, flies buzzing around you. God pulls the car over, gets out, scoops you up. Takes you home, says you will now be my beloved. Breathes life into you, breathes beauty into you. That's the picture. And there's phrases in there like he made us alive. What'd you do? Nothing. He made you alive. By grace, the undeserved gift, not earned. By grace, you have been saved. And it says in there that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. You get the picture. We don't look good here, do we? God does, because he's the Savior, and he gets all the glory. We broke it. We didn't fix it. He's the Savior. Grace alone. You know why? It's because the the gap between us and God is just too big. We could never cover it. Never. He is holy and perfect and pure and incredible, and we are dead objects of wrath. What are we going to do to bridge that? It's not that it's close enough that we could jump across. Little sacraments? No way. We have no hope except by grace, mercy, except by God, but God, right? See, the false gospels, they lower God and they raise us so it's a little gap that we could jump across with some sacraments, some religion, some duty, some work, a little wall. But by contrast, the passage here says that he raised us up, okay? That's because we were dead. That's the language of resurrection, Eric Metaxas wrote a great biography on Martin Luther. And in it, he said this, we are not sick and in need of healing. 
we are dead and in need of resurrecting. You participate in your healing. You don't participate in your resurrection, right? Religion is like putting makeup on a corpse. It's still dead, but let's put some cosmetics so it looks better. And I'll tell you what, the Catholics are great morticians. But Jesus is in a resurrection to making dead things alive. Paul's going to seal the deal in this passage here in the next two verses in 8 and 9. Look at these. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, as you look at that passage, I want you to ask yourself, does that sound to you like grace plus or grace alone? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Listen, what I want you to catch, there's a Trojan horse in that passage. I don't know if you caught it. Even your faith is a gift. Even your, your, even your faith is a gift. Listen, he graciously gave you the gift of faith. I want you to catch this. None of you came to faith. Faith came to you. So didn't I choose God? No, he chose you. You look it up in John chapter 1, verse 13, John chapter 15, verse 16. Passage I don't have time to unpack right now. Go look it up. Yeah, he chose you. But let me give it to you this way. Have you ever seen a dead body? Maybe you've gone to an open casket funeral. Maybe you've seen an accident. Maybe you're in the medical profession. I don't know. How many of you have seen a dead body before? Okay, so that's most of us. So this will work. Let me ask you, um, when you saw that dead body, what was that dead body choosing? Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Dead things don't make choices. They don't. So when God raised Adam up from the dirt, what choice did Adam make in that? When Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, what choice did Lazarus make in that? Dead things don't choose anything but God. But God, right? Listen, sola fide and sola gratia, grace alone and faith alone, these overlap. So why do we have this second slogan? And the reason why is because we would turn faith back into a work. You know why I'm saved before God? Because I have great faith. Look at my faith. I'm awesome at faith. And I start boasting about my faith. I've turned faith back into work. And now we realize, wait a minute, son, you got to understand something. Even your faith was a gift. It's all grace, grace alone. It's just grace. So then why the law, someone would respond. Why the law in the midst of this? Listen, the law is there not to make you holy. The law is there to make you unholy. Okay, The law is there to condemn you, not to save you. To point out that you are dead and desperately in need of a gracious Savior. And yet, you know what we think? We think if we just put the Ten Commandments on the wall of every school, things will be great down here. We think the law will change things? Missed it. Missed it. Romans 5.20 points this out. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Let me explain that. The trespass was when Adam and Eve sinned. Death reigned ever since then. Okay? The law came later. Why? To increase the, the, make the trespass. Yeah, to highlight it, to point it out, not to fix it. See, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The biblical solution to law breaking is not law keeping. 
grace alone. It's grace alone. Now, folks, listen, we did not make this stuff up. In the 1500s, this was rediscovered. We rediscovered the gospel in the scriptures. We didn't leave Christianity. The church had already done that. And then some of us said, wait a minute, that's not right. We're going back to Christianity. Want to come? No, you don't? Okay, Reformation, see ya. And we went back. But in that moment, Roman Catholicism, as we understand it today, was born. And and instead of coming back, what they did is respond with the counter-Reformation and gave us things like the Council of Trent. This is another one of their church councils. It was in the mid-1500s. Some of the things they did in there was to say, yes, absolutely, the seven sacraments are necessary for salvation. They also made the apocryphal books scripture. Let me explain that. Some of you are aware that your Bible has 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, right? But you go to a Roman Catholic Bible, they have more books. Where'd those come from? In between the Old Testament and New Testament, it's called the Apocrypha. What, What happened is they realized they had no scriptural justification for purgatory. They needed purgatory to make their system work. So they found in these late Jewish scholars, these writings, Jews don't even view them as scripture, but they found justification for purgatory. So in the 1500s at the Council of Trent, they said, scripture, that's game in the system. It wasn't viewed as scripture to 1500s. That's where that came in. And then also at the Council of Trent, they gave many kind of rulings, official Catholic teachings like this. Here's Canon 24. If anyone saith that the justice, now remember this is righteous standing, righteousness, justification. So if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and the signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Okay? So if anyone preaches a gospel of grace alone and doesn't say grace plus works, that works actually increase your standing before God, let them be anathema. Anathema means a curse. It's the strongest condemnation that they could pronounce. And this was aver- affirmed by Vatican II in the 1960s. Look, they have taken several things from Trent off the books. They intentionally leave this on. And I've just read you the scriptures. Does that wash for you? That's why we do Sola Scriptura, so that you know it, so the masses know and can go, wait, that's not right. They left this on the books. They have pronounced the gospel of grace alone accursed. I want you to grasp it. I want you to know it. I want you to understand it. Why? Because if you get the true gospel, if you understand the good news, not the instruction, but the news about what Christ has done, that it's grace alone, this will have huge impact on your life. My wife has one tattoo. Sola gratia. It's huge. It's huge. I want to give you, spend the rest of our time just giving you the impact from this in our lives. The first area of impact is humility. There's nothing in me that is better than a non-Christian. The, the, term, the term self-righteous Christian, what a bunch of crap. There's, that's not a contradiction in terms. Listen, the only way I'm a Christian is because I go, I'm not righteous, I have no hope, I'm depraved, and Jesus is my only hope, he's my Savior. I'm the opposite of righteous. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then a guy named Bob Thune got this, he said, look at this, he said, if you have any sense of pride that you are a Christian and someone else isn't, you have missed the point. 
Folks, I'm going to be honest with you today. I'm not good. I'm not innocent. I'm forgiven. Yeah, I have the righteousness of Christ credited to me. Maybe we'll get into that next week. But listen, I don't have to prove anything anymore. Neither do you. The jury has spoken. I'm guilty. I'm just forgiven because of what Christ did. Listen, whatever bad thing you think is true about me, I'm going to tell you right now you're wrong. It's way worse than that. (laughs) It's way worse than that. Grace alone leads to humility, and it's such freedom. Now I can admit when I'm wrong, because I already know I'm wrong. I can extend grace to others because they're wrong like me. Grace is beautiful. And there's this wonderful paradox that flows from this. I am confident that I am absolutely going to heaven. And there is not a bone of arrogance in me. It's all humility. I don't deserve it. I don't get it. That's the paradox of grace alone. Security, humility, same time. That's the first impact. The second impact is obedience. Whoa, time out. I thought this wasn't about works. I thought it wasn't about keeping the rules about the law. Listen, you are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Think about it for a moment. You're going to tell me that you're chosen by God, you're resurrected, you, you are repentant and you're submitted to God. He's adopted you as his daughter, as his son. You love him. He loves you. You're in a relationship with him. You're indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And for the rest of my life, I'm going to give him the finger and do whatever I want. Does that make sense? No, not at all. It's not that we obey in order to be loved. It's that we are loved and therefore we obey. Works are not the root of our salvation, but yeah, I don't care what you say, Council of Trent. They're the fruit. They're the product of our salvation, absolutely. We want to be like our God. We love our God. We love his kingdom. We love people. We want to extend his kingdom. And if none of that's true of you, your problem isn't that you don't have works. The problem with you is probably you don't have faith that leads to the works. Now, do we all have dry spells? Sure, absolutely. But there ought to be a heart disposition that leaks out into my life over time. Tim Keller gets at this. He tells a a story of a woman who, when she was understanding grace alone, didn't like it. Listen to what he, he wrote. He said, I asked her what was so scary about unmerited free grace. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what good can, and God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there is nothing he cannot ask of me. Exactly. Your obedience should flow from grace. A third impact is worship. We are overwhelmed. When I understand how unworthy I am and that God did it for me just as a gift, my heart explodes with worship. Why do you think the most known worship song of all time is amazing? We just sung it. Absolutely. One of my favorites is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I love this, this part where it says, Oh, to grace. How great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander? Lord, I, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love? Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
See where my hope is? It's in him. And he's done it. Are you kidding me? And we worship. We worship. We pour out our hearts before God. And then fourth and last impact is peace. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you one last passage this morning. The context of this is not about what we do. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. It comes out of Hebrews chapter 4. And in light of what that, here's what it says in verse 16. Let us then, in light of what Jesus did for us, past tense, right? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Okay? That assumes you're messed up, you're in need, you're dirty, you're gross. Okay? And so in our gross state, we run confidently. Some, some translations say boldly. Boldly I approach the throne. We run boldly into the throne room of God, jump up on his lap with confidence. What? How? If it was by works, I wouldn't have that confidence. Am I good enough? Is he going to reject me? But no, it's by grace. Grace alone. I I can run confidently to him. Oh, perfect. Listen, do you feel defeated by the same sin over and over? I know you do. Week after week, you do the same stuff. And you're so tired and you're trying to be better and you don't know if you'll ever be good enough. I'll answer the question, you won't. You'll never be good enough. The good news is it was never going to be about your righteousness. God knew it wouldn't work that way. He knew you were like that. He scooped you up as roadkill, took you home and called you his beloved. It's never going to be about you. It's always going to be about grace alone. And Paul gets this. And so when he writes this letter all the time, Paul is saying grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. What are you saying, Paul? If you get grace, you get peace. Without grace, there's no peace. I'm always hesitant and wondering and scared before God. But with grace, I understand I can boldly approach his throne. And now that security in my relationship with God becomes the foundation for intimacy with God. I don't have to be afraid of him. See, fear is interesting. Grace casts out fear. Grace decimates fear. Grace destroys fear. There's no more striving. There's no more pretending. There's no more more worrying. And here I am caught in an avalanche of grace and it is finished. Grace alone. And in light of it, I can boldly run to him. And we're going to sing that here in just a moment. But I'm hoping that this morning, during this song, will be the time that some of you who've been caught in a religion of works for way too long will finally get it and will finally boldly run to your Savior based on grace alone. I hope so. First, let's stand together. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we absolutely love you. We adore you. And we are in shock. Are you kidding me? has nothing to do with me. And I'm just dead and I'm wrath and I'm roadkill and you love me? You took me in? Gave me nothing to do just to receive a gift? Folded me into your family. Thank you. Thank you. And I pray, Father God, that you would harvest the fruit of that in our lives, that we wouldn't just leave it to some dull, dusty textbook somewhere, but that you would harvest that into our lives right now. And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.